0: Chris always complains, like, nobody knows how to work anymore. And so when we get an employee and they come in, they're like, I want to learn woodwork from Chris Earl. And they come in and they're so excited. And then they're like, why do I have to sand all the day?
1: That's the voice of Amber Earl, co owner of Earl Home. And I'm excited to talk with her and her co owner, Chris Earl, right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Chris and Amber Earl, co-owners of the Los Angeles, California-based furniture company Earl Home. Chris and Amber have grown their company to be both large and small at the same time. With Chris as the shop side and Amber running the business side, they've expanded their company leaps and bounds every year. But Even though they continue to grow, by working smarter, not harder, and locally outsourcing the main building elements of their pieces, they've been able to keep their company lean, helping them deal with fluctuations of the furniture market. Follow along as we talk about working with outside manufacturing, the hard parts of shipping, office work, and employee hiring, how they both manage co-ownership, and much more. But let's start at the beginning of their story, back before the name Earl stood for furniture. Back to the time when it was just a last name.
2: I grew up, my dad My dad was handy all growing up. He was one of those jack of all trades, you know, so I was always the one tagging along right behind him, wanting to figure out how things worked and, and what, he was, what he was fixing, whether it was doing some plumbing project or framing a, a new little thing for the house, whatever it may be. Um, I grew up overseas in Papua New Guinea. And so over there, you kind of had what you could, what you could maintain or what you could make. Um, You couldn't just, you know, go run down to the store and and buy a new one. So there was definitely a a big emphasis on figuring out how we can keep something running or make something work based on the materials that we had on hand. Uh, As far as furniture proper, one, I graduated from high school. I ended up back stateside in California, and I was interested in pursuing kind of an art direction. I went into studio art initially, but I pretty quickly realized that even, even something like the medium of uh, that sculpture afforded me was, it was hands-on, but I love the utilitarian aspect of, of furniture. Um, so for me, that that kind of quickly became like a perfect melding of of form and function. I love the idea of, of building something that is that is sculptural by nature, but that people are going to use on a on a daily basis and is going to you know foster gathering and community and and all those fun things. So I I initially just started doing furniture on the side just for myself. You know um, I. Like I said, I was handy, but I didn't know any of the, you know, real ins and outs. So I just started taking City College classes. I would basically sign up for a class. I wasn't in college at the time, but I would just sign up for a class, make friends with the the instructor. um, And then I would just bang out whatever projects they had on the syllabus real quick uh, so that I could just have access to that, to the shop. (laughs) And I would just go in you know, whether it was after hours or in between classes or whatever the the teacher would allow me to do, um, and get in there and just just build what I wanted. That was that was me just kind of dipping my toe in. The next major foray is when uh, I started getting a little more excited about it. I decided to try and pursue it as an actual means of of income. Um, and at that same time, I kind of Fortuitously got an opportunity to to apprentice with a guy out in Venice here in California. So I apprenticed with him for a while in his woodshop, uh, this guy, Steve Ritson, he had a company called Alderly Edge, just solo guy working out of Venice, making, making rad stuff. Um, so for years, this is, this was like early two thousands. So for years, I just kind of had furniture as my side hustle. Uh, I was making commission pieces for people, you know, whenever you get the, the job, obviously starting off without anyone knowing who you are, it can be kind of slow going. So I always had a, I always had a job to pay the bills for me. That was, that was cooking. I ended up in kitchens and working as a personal chef for a while. Um, but in, let's see, I met Amber. What did we meet?
0: 20,
2: we met in 2009. 2009. Yeah, 2009. Um, and at that time, I was still doing furniture on the side. But when we got married a couple years later, I basically decided to leave the cooking stuff behind and just throw myself full into furniture. Um, I was getting to that point that I know a lot of people feel, where you realize if I don't if I don't just go all out for this, I'm never going to do it. So I took the jump and just threw myself into it. At the time I just kind of created a line of furniture because I figured I gotta have something to put out there in the world. Um there was not really any rhyme or reason to it. I just started making a couple things that I thought would be cool, you know, <laughs> whatever was in my head at that time. I was just like, all right, I'm just gonna start making a couple things and see if I can do anything with it. And yeah, over the next couple of years we were able to kind of build that into a, a small business we started off just going to a couple trade shows and just making relationships with a few interior designers and that sort of thing here in Los Angeles to be honest the biggest thing on the business side of thing that that happened for me was uh, amber coming along into my life when she uh, started helping out with the business side of things that's what actually made a couple things happen for us because I'm I'm definitely just that guy that's happier off in the wood shop making stuff. Whether people want to buy it or not, <laughs> that's not really my, my concern. I just want I just want to be out there making stuff. So having Amber uh, come in and, and run the business was was super key for me. And now she's, I mean, she is the reason we have a business at all. Otherwise, I'd still just be that guy tinkering away out in his garage.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that guy tinkering away in his garage is is fun and it is a enjoyable thing to do, but like you said, that doesn't make the business. That doesn't make the money. And as a show about the business of the furniture business, we're definitely going to get into that, but I wanted to first talk about something you said in your story, and that is when you took the jump into working for yourself. You were taking classes, you were building things, and then you took that jump into having your own company. And it's a lot of little steps. It's a lot of different things along the way that make that possible. But I'm always fascinated by when people come up with the name of their company, because that's when it it goes from just an idea, like, yes, you could be building stuff, you could be making furniture and selling it. But once you come up with that name and you display it all over your furniture and you say, this is my company, that's when it really becomes something. So do you remember when you said this is going to be the name of my company?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just I always uh, was building stuff just under my own name for a long time. It wasn't, you know, any official company name. I, I initially set up just a DBA so that I could file some taxes and stuff like that. Uh, I actually wanted to call my company Earl Residence, uh, just barring my last name and residents had a, had a nod to, you know, home and, and furniture, whatnot. But I had a couple marketing buddies at the time who basically swore at me and said, "No way! Just just do it under your name. Let people get to know who who you are um, as a as a woodworker, maker, furniture builder." Uh, so for years, it was just under, it was just my name. Uh, but that was primarily when I was when I was just doing commission pieces. So it was a very much just a word of mouth business. Uh, getting one or two jobs and then those getting referrals from those uh, from the work I did to turn into a couple more. As far as a a more legitimate and and proper business that all happened when Amber came on board. Uh, When she came on she started actually getting the ship into order um, handling all of our our books and doing reach out to interior designers and stores and online platforms and yeah, just kind of putting us out there a lot more at that time. It just, it didn't make sense for the business to just be called Chris Earl anymore because she was such an integral part of that. And that's when we chose to just call our company Earl, Um, earl earl.com wasn't available. So we put a dash home in there literally just for the website. (laughs) <laughs> so the company's Earl and our website's Earl Home.
0: <laughs> Which makes sense for what we're selling. You know, we're selling homewares and home goods. And so we thought if people are Googling Earl, a lot of stuff will come up. But if they want Earl Home or Earl Furniture, that would be easy for people to find us.
2: Yeah, it's funny though. We actually we actually put, I'm kind of realizing now, we put very little thought into our company name. <laughs> we basically <laughs> just said, yeah, let's call it our last name. And and then we just went with what was available.
1: <laughs> As somebody who has also named their furniture company after themselves, I I understand where you're coming from, where it's just a natural progression, where it's you, you're building it. But at the same time, calling it your own name adds that that little bit of an extra... I don't know, it's not stress, but that that little extra bit of you into it where every piece you're putting out, you have to stand behind because not only are you building it, but it also literally, figuratively, emotionally has your name on it. So it puts a little something extra behind the pieces you put out.
2: Yeah, totally, Ab- absolutely. Two things on that, I think. I think it's helped Uh, in that because, because of that, it definitely keeps you honest in the, in the program, you know, like we've always, we've always made everything here in LA. We're seeing every piece and putting, putting hands on every piece that goes through us. So to some degree, that's, that's kind of limited us in, in that it, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many things that you can, you can physically get through. Um, But at the same time, I think it's, it's definitely allowed us to have a ethos of, hey, this legitimately is
1: us just making furniture for you. Now, Chris, you like being in the wood shop and building stuff. So I'm going to let you mentally check out for a little bit. And I want to talk to Amber because you are the driving force of the actual business side of this business. Yes, the furniture side is important, but you can't sell anything if you don't have clients. So what was your background and how did that work itself into owning a furniture company?
0: Um, yeah. So I um, my dad was always in sales. Um, he actually had like a water bottle route uh, where he's, he delivered those five gallon water bottles around the city and was in sales always and so I think I got his knack for that where it just comes naturally and it just was something that you know I think a lot of people get pretty stressed out by doing sales and realize it's not for them and then for some people you know like comes a little bit naturally to me so I kind of fell into it I majored in communications and I had a minor in business and I guess I took My familiarity with that and just my love for numbers and puzzle pieces and spreadsheets and problem solving. And that just kind of played into um, what I pursued. I actually worked in the fashion industry for almost a decade, maybe more. Um, And I was always in sales. I was in the back end um, doing wholesale for brands, for designers. And so I worked my way up the ladder and I became. You know national sales manager overseeing several brands working with several department stores at once and overseeing multiple brands selling to multiple channels selling very high quantities of goods um and then you know seeing what works and what doesn't work and i found a lot of success i got super blessed while working in that industry and yeah, it was super fun for a, a long time. And then when I met Chris, I, I couldn't ever picture myself not doing that. Um, but when I met him and he was doing the furniture, I was helping him on the side, launch the business, create a collection and all of that. But I, I realized, oh, this would be the dream to be able to sell our family, like what he's making versus someone else like, you know, push our own family business, like push him into having a successful business. If I can sell clothing, why couldn't I sell furniture if I believe in that? Um, So that's kind of how it how it came about or how I came to, you know, the background of me being into sales and being into business and numbers. And there was a huge element of, you know, me doing PR and marketing and design, helping with design direction and merchandising of what is needed in order to continue to grow and continue to be successful.
1: I always love talking to co-owners when one person is the building side and one person is the business side, because let's be honest, a lot of people who Build furniture are not always the best business people. Yeah. They get so involved in the actual building part of it that it's hard to see the bigger picture. They understand the skill involved, but since it comes naturally to them, they don't understand how much of a commodity actually being able to build furniture for other people is. But the people coming from the business side, look at that and they say, this is something that we can sell. So when you started to look at the beginnings of this company, what were some of the things that you saw that were happening that needed to change for this to change from furniture making to a furniture business?
0: So originally when um, we got married uh, in 2012, Chris was still getting a lot of commissioned work. And so at the time when we first got married, he kind of renovated our house and turned it into somewhat of a showroom. And then was building custom one-off pieces. And he himself was kind of, you know, discouraged because it was every time he was designing and making something, he was reinventing the wheel. And it was taking so much time. And then the amount of the amount of money that people want to pay for the amount of time he was saying didn't add up. And so I think he was just getting discouraged because you see all the work you put into it and then the return isn't really there. And so I was telling him, you need to create a line of something that you can reproduce over and over again. And if people want to customize it, they can feel like they're still getting something custom by customizing it to their space. But if you have something to start with and you're not reinventing the wheel every time, it'll help with time management. And so I mean we kind of came up with that together and so he spent all of 2013 designing and creating a capsule collection Um, and we put them all in our home and lived with them and tested them and then emptied our home and packed them up and shipped them to new york for the architectural digest home design trade show and we launched them all there and got a ton of press from arc digest domino magazine and a bunch of interior designers along with you know publications and I remember after that show we were approached by Design Sponge and Apartment Therapy to do a home tour of our home with the furniture in our home and that got our eyes in front of so many people and just a side note funny thing about Chris is he does not like being um the show face, you know, like he couldn't stand that it was Chris Earl and his face is the background. And he's, you know, I'm constantly setting him up on photo shoots and interviews because I'm the one reaching out and, and knowing, you know, how to create a buzz around what he's doing. And he's just like, Oh, this is my nightmare. I'm like, just do it for one second. And then we'll, we can, you know, keep making furniture. And so it was a definite point of contention, which is what led us to changing our name to Earl. But we created this, this line of furniture. And then I'll, I'll never forget this. We got this inquiry from uh, an interior designer that was designing a hotel. And he asked, what is the lead time for 12 beds? And we just laughed out loud. We were like, I don't know, a year? How, how are we going to make 12 beds? It's going to take so long. you know." So we, we laughed and immediately thought, okay, we need to figure out how to scale these. We need to find someone that can help us do the initial build so that you're not making every single piece from start to finish. Otherwise, how are we gonna meet lead times? Like how are we gonna give people what they want in a decent amount of time? Um, and so, after a ton of research and a ton of um, visiting different wood shops around the uh, Los Angeles area, we found an amazing partner who we have worked with since 2014. That shop, they make um, all of our production items that we make, that we sell often, um, they do all the initial build. So, we brought them the original prototypes, they made a sample from that. Um, They do all the initial build and initial sanding, and then we pick up those pieces from them. And then we have, um, we always have at least one shop assistant here that helps to do all the finished sanding. And then we have um, uh, now a very close family friend of ours who's also worked with us since I think 2015 when we did a restaurant. Um, And he does like all the different finishes for us. If we're staining something or bleaching something or, you know, whatever kind of finish we need, lacquering, waxing, oiling. He does all of our finishing work. Um, And then we've had to find craters because we can't, you know, have Chris spending all of his time packaging. So it's just been a, I think, finding those people in um, South Central LA who help us to do the initial build of the furniture is what has made us be able to do what we do.
1: White labeling your line of furniture or even having people batch out parts and and you assemble it is a great way for a business to be able to scale without having to take on that full complement of people that you would need to run your business the way you want it to. And that is something that a lot of people don't look into because they think we want to keep everything in house. We want to, this is the way I built things and I want to keep building it that way. But as your story is a testament to is a good way to grow your business without all those responsibilities.
0: Yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible. We've, we played around a lot and looked around for, for even more help because the help is is so amazing. And like you said, it's honestly the only way that we're able to scale up. We've done a couple restaurants and hotels where they've ordered over 200 chairs and bar stools. And I mean, you know, there's no way, unless we had everything in house, our lead time at that point was about six to eight weeks. Um, Right now it's way worse, but um, it was so, it's so great to have, to have that um, in our business model. I know that a lot of our we have quite a few friends who who have furniture businesses and we're kind of known (laughs) and our friends as the ones who have the lowest overhead and i think because we don't have our everything in-house it allows us to have a low overhead which is what helped us during 2020 when everything kind of slowed down we thought oh thank god we don't have a huge warehouse with a bunch of employees um you know relying on us we're just We have a wood shop in the back of our house that Chris, you know, it's our garage that Chris turned into a wood shop and it's just him and I. And, you know, we are able to have these amazing partners who help us to make everything happen. Um, So we're just, I think that's been our whole mentality. This whole time is low overhead and, and every. One of our friends who have successful businesses that we've talked to say that if there's anything that they could do differently, or if there's anything that they would give anyone advice would just to be like, keep your overhead as low as possible.
1: Sending it out and white labeling it to another company you trust makes a lot of sense. But when you're sending it out, there's also that fear of it's in somebody else's hands. And for both of you, having your name on it, it could be a scary thing at times to be sending your work to a different company and then just seeing the final results right before they're sent out. So how do you work with these other manufacturers, other furniture companies, other businesses to ensure that the quality is up to both of your standards?
0: We have had to send multiple things back. like just now we we picked up a round of our dance bed from our, the guy that helps us manufacture and we had to send a couple headboards back because we weren't happy with the posts and how they were turned. And there were, I mean, Chris's attention to detail and how, you know, he's a perfectionist and the way that he wants things done is very specific and he doesn't compromise the quality control. So when we, get those pieces we check them over and then we finish sand them before they get any finish applied and when he's checking them over and sanding them if there's any sort of imperfection or anything that is compromising the design or the quality or this is the functionality of the piece or you know that it's going to have the longevity that we want it to have we send it back and we have a new one made and then that usually affects the lead time but. I know anytime I've emailed a client and said, you know what, like we were, we, we were, we're finishing up your piece and there's just something that's not perfect on it and we want it to be perfect for you. So we're going to have to redo it. And they're, they're never, <laughs> I'm sure they're disappointed, but we always get a positive response because you know, no one wants to pay a decent amount of money and not be happy with what they receive. And like you said, like you stamp your name on it. What I thought you were going to say was something about the, just the shipping. Um, is a nightmare. Shipping is the what the worst part of the business. I think the amount of time that Chris has spent crating, like we don't even the thing, the funny thing is, we found a crater. Um, we were working with Parachute Home and making a bed frame for them. And we were making so many units we couldn't handle the amount of time the packaging was taking. So we were sending them out to be packaged. But our collection pieces, Chris has to oversee the way that they're packaged because it is just devastating when you spend six to eight weeks finishing this beautiful piece of furniture and all these hands touch it to make it perfect you package it up and the customer gets it and they say uh there's those are dent because the shipper dropped it or they poked a hole through or whatever you know or it wasn't packaged properly so it got scratched or you know and then the amount of money to ship that one piece back so that we can fix it or you know it's just like the logistics of like when that piece leaves our property is, it, it it's stressful. <laughs> and so with that, we literally, which I don't know how long we can maintain that, but we watch every piece leave and we carefully package every piece because we don't, you know, after you do all of that work and you spend all that time and money, you don't want it to arrive to the person um, damaged in any way.
1: When you start a furniture business, You're doing it because you love building furniture. But as it becomes an actual business, you realize that building the furniture is not really the business anymore. There's so many other things that go into actually having the furniture company that that sometimes the building takes a back seat. And it's a very hard thing to explain to people who are not in the industry or hobby furniture builders or people who haven't scaled their business or are still doing just custom commissions because shipping, not only the logistics of getting a company that you can trust to come pick it up, deliver it whether it's white glove or curbside delivery, taking the packaging away, all that stuff is so time consuming, but that's office wise. But then if you're actually in the shop, just building the crates can take hours and days depending on how many pieces you're shipping out. So there's just so much more to the business than just the furniture side.
0: It's, oh my gosh, I just was like, clapping and snapping and nodding my head to everything you were just saying, because we have had the hardest time finding good employees. And I don't know if it's like a California thing and work ethic or millennials, which I am like on, I'm a millennial. I think, I think I'm like one of the oldest, but the, the, like the idea of people just wanting to press a button and be done with it, you know, like on their sitting back behind their computers or their screens and, Chris always complains, like, nobody knows how to work anymore. And so when we get an employee and they come in, they're like, I want to learn woodwork from Chris Earl. And they come in and they're so excited. And then they're like, why do I have to sand all day? And he, he just tells them, that's what we do. And we're packaging and we're cutting boxes and we're, there's glue ups and there's the process of design, but then there's the part where you have to make it and you have to sand the whole thing until it's perfectly sanded with no swirl marks and no you know so it's like we get these grooms who are just like oh it's so fancy like i'm gonna be a furniture maker it's gonna be i mean fancy is not the word that chris would use but they, you know they're they're so you know interested in doing what he does and they have this idea in their head of what it looks like to do that as for a living and. I think there's a rude awakening and we usually you know they don't last very long when we have these employees because they think that it's going to look very differently um and so that's been even a hard thing for us is to find those shop assistants who will do quality work and want to learn and want to do you know the dirty work that goes into helping out with production furniture where you're kind of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and what we've now come to realize is you get what you pay for. So we love having the entry at the entry level kids come to learn from Chris, um, even when they don't last very long. I think, you know, the pro Chris is like I don't have time to to train them, re-teaching anytime someone comes up to teach them start to finish how to do something, and then they're like oh I don't want to do that, and then they leave. Um, And so now, most recently, we have a shop assistant who is much more qualified than an employee. And we're noticing the difference of the quality of work and attention to detail and even just drive to finish because he knows what it takes and he knows, like, the dirty work that has to go into it. And he's happy to do it because he's a craftsman. And then when you have someone that's a craftsman that's into it, then also having them not want to start their own business and leave because they're actually good at it. And they, they're they like, well, I'm just gonna go make my own thing because I think, you know, which of course we support that. We want to, if we were to be able to hire people, teach them what it, what it means to create a successful business and what's necessary from start to finish. And then they kind of graduate from here and create their own thing, that's also beautiful. But I, that has been a struggle for us to find, you know, the consistent, steady help.
1: I have to say you're making my interview job so hard because you keep bringing up all these different topics that I want to, I want to jump into and they'll, they'll be entire shows on themselves. I feel like I could do a, an eight part series on all the stuff we just talked about, but I do want to jump back into the actual wood shop for a second and, and talk to Chris and Something you said at the beginning in your story is something that stood out to me, and I want to touch on that first, and then, sorry, did you say something?
0: Yeah, and hold on, because he, when you said go into the woodshop, he went into the woodshop. So oh, check. did he
1: really? Okay. I, didn't, I meant that metaphorically.
0: <laughs> oh, no, he ran into the woodshop the second you told him to go do that, so let me just tell him to come back really quick. <laughs> yes, that is awesome. Hold on one second. Luckily the wood shop is just Hey, I'm back Going to the garage
1: That is so funny I, meant, I was wondering why you weren't chiming in I, didn't, I wasn't actually banishing you to the shop But I guess that really shows what Amber said earlier Where you do not like being the face of the company You really do like being in the back and building things
2: Oh, totally you give me the chance, I'm out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is that is really funny. Well, I will recap very quickly what I was saying. And, and that is that I want to talk about the design process and your design process. Something you said at the beginning in your story of, of how you got to starting your company is that was how you were a chef maybe along the same time or before the furniture making. And Amber was just talking about how hard it is to find people who want to really put the effort in that it takes to build a quality piece of furniture. And the idea of chefs and cooking and the idea of furniture makers and furniture building is something that I've actually thought a lot about because they're both incredibly creative fields to work in. But cooking is, it happens and it's done. And people eat it. It's hot or cold. They eat it. They enjoy it. And it's a memory. But furniture is something that lives on, that you build you put out into the world and if it's an heirloom quality piece or a well-designed piece, it's probably going to outlive the person who buys it. So when you're designing stuff, how has your design process evolved? And how the idea of you having once been a chef and, and making stuff that just disappears in, in an hour to making physical furniture that that has longevity?
2: Yeah, so the, that design process for me um, does tend to be pretty intuitive. I always have in the, in the back of my mind, it's just kind of a, a running story, thinking this is the next piece I want to build or I'll just have a desire that I, I want to make an armchair or I want to make a dining chair, a table, whatever it may be. And so for months that'll just be in the back of my head and I'll get little bits of inspiration, um, just throughout the day it can be from literally anything, you know, I'll, I'll see, um, a particular like pattern that a tree is, is growing in, or I'll see a car driving by and notice some, some little line on the the styling of that car, whatever whatever it may be, those ideas just kind of run in the back of my head. When it comes time to finally build the thing, I'll make some thumbnail sketches, uh, just to get get down on paper, kind of a coalition of of all those disparate ideas and hone them into one piece. But then the real the real work for me starts in the shop. I just go in, spend a day milling wood, and as I'm milling wood, I'm thinking final cuts, joinery, how am I gonna put this thing together? What are gonna be the elements that'll make this piece stand out from, you know, every other four-legged chair that's out there? What's gonna be my personal touch on the thing? And then obviously the practicality when it comes to furniture, if you're building a piece that you want to last, it needs to be a properly functioning piece of furniture. You know, the the chair can't be uncomfortable to sit in the drawers have to open uh, properly and close properly. All of those, all of those technical details, you know. Uh, but the real, the real design for me happens in the shop. Once I start going in there, start making cuts, um, and then I'll just, I'll just sketch. I'll have, I never do like a proper exploded view or anything like that. Uh, but I'll have my thumbnail sketch, and then I'll just start referencing. Like, okay, for this leg juncture where it's coming into the stretcher this is the kind of joint I got to do. And then I'll figure out my specs of, you know, I need a 16th inch here, and this has got to be back set one, three quarters, whatever it may be. Um,
1: And yeah, just, then I just start building. Do you feel like you design pieces differently because you're not limited by your own two hands? You are white labeling a lot of this stuff. So you, don't have to build all of them. Does that give you a little bit more of a freedom when you're designing because you know you're going to do the initial one, but then you're gonna send it out to a much larger shop that is going to be able to do it quicker and easier and, and more efficiently than just you building it yourself?
2: Uh, no, honestly, it's it's kind of the, the opposite. I actually feel um, a little bound by, by, by those features. I often feel bound by like, obviously I've got to build the first one in my shop. That's fine. And I can spend as much time as I want. Um, so in that regard, I don't find that there are too many limits, um, but I do think ahead as far as capabilities of the, the shop that we're working with and getting final fit and finish on everything. Um, them being able to execute, us being able to do all the final, final work on, you know, initial build, and we're scaling up to do 150 chairs for a restaurant or whatever. Obviously, I've got to bring them on board to to do initial build, but then we've still got to truck through each of those to do all the final sanding, all the final checking, and all that. Um, but yeah, design wise, I would, I would actually. I would love to assume that a broader application could be could be manufactured. I often feel constrained by by what can actually get done in the way in the way that we're building it, kind of the old school way.
1: Now that I have you both back around, um, and I hope I hope I hope Amber didn't run away this time, and and you're you're both there and you can hear me. Yeah, I'm here. Perfect. Now that I have you both back I want to talk about balance and the balance of running a company if you look at any of the marketing for your company it's very much based around you as a family it's in the name it's it's your name but running a company with a co-owner with a partner is a hard thing to do And it can be even harder when it is not only a professional relationship, but also a personal relationship, because the boundaries of the business are so blurred that they don't even exist anymore. There's no off the clock, on the clock. There's no in the office, out of the office. So how have you both developed a good working relationship that makes it possible to balance both the professional side of running a business and also the personal side of running the business.
0: I I don't know what Chris would say about this, but I personally think that Chris and I do not live to work. We work to live. So we're not completely driven by sales and money and scaling and you know let's get investors let's get a space let's like we're so um kind of conservative in that way where we're so happy that it's just him and i and that we don't have you know we're talking about the issues of having employees and you know there there's. More, more money, more problems and more, you know, it's like the more success you get is amazing. And we want to continue to grow and we want to continue to evolve and we want to continue to, you know, profit. Um, but obviously our mental health and our marriage comes first. And I think with that, we both just put that first. And I, I think we just both aren't, I think it's just the thing in us both that we're not necessarily driven by the business and by the money, but we love that we're able to still create and we're still able to have fun with it and we're able to manage our time and, you know, take off on a Friday, work on a Sunday, take off on a Monday. And, you know, we want to keep it that way. And and so I think that that helps. I mean, what would you say?
2: Yeah, totally. Um, I also think we're just we're a little lucky in that um, you are you are totally right that there's not really a whole lot of work life separation but for whatever reason we're just kind of fine with that (laughs) um i think a lot of it is just uh constant communication you know we're we're doing constant check-ins with each other throughout the day of like what's going on whether it's you know who's dealing with the kids now or who's like how is this thing going for work you know what's this client saying about about this job that we're working on or what's the next thing on our, on our docket. Um, But that I, I know, because, because I know other people that are doing it, I know that can be a really difficult thing for, for some people, especially as, as like a a couple to do it. Um, But for whatever reason, it's just kind of worked out for us. You know
0: what I think also helps and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that we also both have a deep, deep respect for each other and each other's work. So I believe in him, like I'm his number one fan. Like everything that he makes, I can't wait to market it and sell it. And I just think that he's such a brilliant, visionary designer maker that like, obviously we have conflict and we make mistakes and things go wrong. But when that's the overarching thing above all else, like. He always says, "You're the reason we have a business, and you're the reason." Oh, thank you for all that you do. And so, I think that mad respect that we both have for each other's work really also helps because that's the underlying foundation. So that when there are there is tension or there is there are mistakes that are made because of just human error, because that happens, um, we're able to give each other grace because of that, you know, foundation that we are built on of like respect for each other.
2: Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a great point. And just allowing like each other to hold the roles that where our strengths lie kind of allows us for the, for the rest of it to all be kind of muddled together in a way that, that works. You know, our, the, other, the other aspect that's just popping to mind right now is so much of our work, it is work, but it, it doesn't feel like it because it just feels like a part of life, a part of what you do in your in your day um it's more of a uh yeah like this is this is how we live we we go out we work and we we're together and we come in and make some food and it's it's almost a uh it's a little more like living on a farm but we're making furniture (laughs) instead of pulling up
1: beets (laughs) i hear the respect that you both have for each other, not only in that last answer, but in the entire time talking with you and and how you are each other's biggest fans. And I also hear how both of you are so humble about this business that you built, but taking a step back, you run an impressive company. You hinted at some of the the types of orders you get you hinted at some of the the success that you've had and i'm sure if we took a look at the back end of your business it would be very very impressive i know that there's a lot of people out there listening to this show that want to make the jump into having their own furniture company and they don't know the right time to start they don't know when to jump in they don't know what the first steps to do to have a successful company like both of you are having and I know that there's people who have been doing this for a long time or what feels like a long time and they just haven't hit that level of success that they feel they want to be at so from your experience, both of you coming at it from two different sides of the industry, but coming together to make a very successful company. What do you see as things that people listening should focus on to get their company to where yours is now?
2: That's probably a a better one for Amber to answer. Um, I mean, my, de- my default is always just focus on the work, uh, do, do what you do. Stay away from being, you know, stay away from being derivative. Just if you've got a perspective and you've got, if you have something in you that needs to come out and you want to make something, just start making it, just start beating on that drum and do it again and again and again, and you'll evolve as you go along. But I'd be more concerned with being proud of, of what you're creating than how it's, how it's received. Um, business side of things, that is, that is tough. I mean, so much of it too is, is a stroke of, of luck, meeting the right people at the right time um, or just being afforded the right opportunities. But I'm sure Amber can talk a lot more to that.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I have a lot to say on that, but to keep it short, I would say start small um focused and small um you know it doesn't have to be you don't have to reinvent the wheel you don't have to um you know if it's furniture you could just be known for for beds you could just be known for chairs you could just be known for tables desks you know like if there is something that you're passionate about just start there and make one thing um and then you know obviously you can make three different versions of that one thing, you know, sizing. And then you can make that one thing in three different wood types and then in three different finishes and then have 20 things, even though you only designed one desk or one chair. So I think just keeping it simple is brilliant. And then also one of the biggest things for Chris and I is PR or like personal relationships, like personally relating to your client. So the funny thing is like you go and you after you've done that, you put yourself out there. Once you put yourself out there, it's usually shocking what people respond to. You put out a, an array of a few things and the things that people want to buy, you're shocked by because, you know, we do we did this bed and it's our highest ticketed item. We're like, no one's going to want to pay this much for this. And it was our number one thing everyone wanted. So I think a lot of times, like, just put yourself out there. You'll be shocked by the things that people want to invest in and what people respond to. And then number three, like, get to know your client, you know, get to know who you're selling to and don't take yourself too seriously. Um, take constructive criticism. We've, our pieces have all evolved so much throughout the years where if a client says, Hey, you know, my mattress is the special Tempur-Pedic mattress. Like I can't have the slats be like this. So then we change our slats going forward instead of getting defensive or, or, you know, feeling attacked or having to defend our work. We just were like, okay, let's improve, let's improve. Like we're constantly improving and listening to clients and figuring out what we can do to make, to continue to grow and be better. And also just like personal relationships with your clients I think in Sales. That's a huge thing. That's always been huge for me. And what Chris said, where it doesn't feel like work. So when you're working with a client, like we've had interior designers and clients over for dinner. We have them over to our house for tours and then we end up becoming friends and then our, we have a play date with our kids and it's, it becomes personal and then it doesn't feel like there's this agenda driven, but then they want to work with you and then they come back for more because they know that you stand behind your product and that you're not in it for getting their money, but you just find pleasure in making things for, for them.
2: And in the, the real relationship that's formed there. I know that like the people involved in the, our the business side of our world will always be more important to us than the end of the day, uh, you know, spreadsheet or red or black. Yeah. <laughs> but that's me talking. Amber's like rolling her eyes right now because <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "Yeah, right.
1: You got to keep it a business, girl. Yeah. <laughs> It is both. It's a business, but it's also about building relationships, making connections and having that network of people that you can reach out to when your business is going strong and when it needs a little extra love. So yeah.
2: for sure.
1: Thank you for taking this time to sit down and, and talk with me and to, to share your journey and your story with everybody out there listening i'm sure you helped a lot of people with the things that you've said and i just want to say thank you and i wish you both all the success in your company and your business and your growth moving forward
2: yeah thanks man really appreciate that Uh, feelings mutual
0: yeah thank you so much
1: thanks so much for listening to building a furniture brand with ethan Abramson. if you liked what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen to learn more about the show you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime to say hey ask a question or suggest a guest for future episodes our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com